Well, last Sunday we wrapped up uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we'd been on uh, a little journey here through uh, 2 Corinthians, a few chapters. And uh, if you remember, Paul was encouraging us to fix our eyes, right? Fix our eyes um, on inward realities over outward appearances, over eternal truths instead of temporary things, on what is unseen instead of what is seen, And we talked about what a challenge it is to not lose heart when life kind of throws us some curveballs. And we also acknowledge that in the midst of trying to keep our eyes fixed on the right things, that the reality is is that we have an enemy who's working equally as hard to discourage us and distract us and, uh, you know, disengage us from our mission and, and to lose sight of this ministry that we have to boldly speak this new covenant of grace. And so Paul keeps reminding us, he says, we do not lose heart. It's just not an option, right? We talk about how it's a command. We have to stay in the game. We have to fix our eyes. And we talked about the importance of doing that in community with others who are, are helping us to have that right perspective when, when sometimes we kind of lose perspective. And so I hope you have those people in your life that are helping you fix your eyes. I hope you are those people to somebody else. And today, as we move on to chapter 5, Paul is going to kind of continue in this theme of what we are putting our hope in. So I want you to go ahead and and open to 2 Corinthians 5, if you haven't already. It's page 1054-1054 in your pew Bibles. We're going to read... Uh, the whole section, verses 1 through 10, um, and then go into some explanation. So, so starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, uh, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore... We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. So that's a lot. That's kind of one of those, you know, who's on first type passages. Like, what? Whose body's where? What's going on? All right, so Paul can get a little wordy at times. Don't tell him I said that. But So I want to stay... Um, thank you for laughing, Karen. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I want to stay on the macro level here, big picture today as we go through this, because we could get lost on a lot of little rabbit trails um, with a particular verse or two here. So, um, so a lot of what we're going to focus on today gets back to how we view our life here on earth. Okay. So Paul 
in Philippians 3.20, he says that we are, as followers of Christ, we are citizens of heaven. Okay, so that's one thing we have to remember. Our citizenship is no longer here. (laughs) We are citizens of heaven. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, refers to Christians as foreigners and exiles in this world. Okay? I want you to hold your finger there in 2 Corinthians if you can and flip over to Colossians 3, which will be to your right a little bit, page 1076. In another location, in another letter... Paul gives us this reminder in uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So again, another perspective reminder from Paul. He says, for you died. I was just talking with uh, somebody this week and, and just talking about their life and, and I had to take them back to their baptism, right? And I had to say, remember, when you went under, your old life, your old man, that man of flesh is dead. That's not who you are anymore. That's not your identity. And we have to remind ourselves of that. You're a new creation, a citizen of heaven, and that reality should shape our perspective on how we view everything here on earth. So part of our identity as Christians is coming to terms with the spiritual truth that this world that we're occupying now is not our home any longer, okay? That's true on a spiritual level. We have to kind of embrace that. C.S. Lewis put it best, and you've probably heard this quote before. He said, if I find it in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You know, and when we enter into this relationship with God and and we understand and we start to experience a little bit of the, the kingdom of heaven and we long for those things, we understand that, man, that's the world I was made for, not this counterfeit world that, that, that this earth is offering me. And this is the line of thinking that Paul is running with in chapter 5. And the overarching theme of our, our passage today is this. A right desire for the future, a proper understanding of what is to come, leads to a right ambitions in the present. The way I view what is coming leads me to live a life, to live a particular way in the present. The way I view what is coming leads me to live a particular way in the present, okay? We're going to come back to that later. But the first couple verses of chapter 5 get it at the heart of this right desire for the future. So Paul uses this imagery, as we just read in those uh, 10 verses, uh, uses this imagery to explain our, our, describe our temporary bodies as a tent. So I want you to um, give me words that describe, when you think of tents, how would you describe a tent? What words would you use to describe it? Raise your hand. Yes. What's that? Portable. Yes. Temporary. What else? Fragile. Yes. 
Who's been in a tent that's just blown away in the night, right? Absolutely. Yes. Any other words? Yes. Leaky. Yes. What do we have over here? Shelter. Okay. Yeah. Vulnerable. Great. Okay. All great descriptors there. Uh, Paul, in, in chapter 4, he just used a phrase that's kind of what similar uh, spirit. He's, he called our, our temples jars of clay, right? Remember, Justin spoke on that a couple weeks ago, kind of these temporary, fragile things. So Paul's a tent maker by profession. So he's, he's using this imagery because it's kind of in his wheelhouse. And he compares our temporary, vulnerable bodies here. He compares them, he contrasts them to our eternal bodies, and he calls those buildings or homes. And when we think of those things, the words you would probably use to describe it would be more like sturdy and strong. Okay? But if we're honest, we put a lot of effort into our tents, don't we? Maybe we need to put more effort into our tents. I don't know. But a lot of us exercise our tents, right? We... we um, we dress them up, we manicure them, we massage them. The energy, time, and resources that we spend on our earthly bodies is pretty staggering. We put a lot of effort into our outer, outer man, trying to, to dress up what's ultimately decaying. So let me just take a poll here. How many of you are campers? Like you love to camp. Sickos. All you people disgust me. No, I'm kidding. I absolutely hate camping. Like, vacation for me is a bed with air conditioning and a hot shower. Any amens out there? Yes. Right? So, yeah, we're the ones blowing all our money on hotel rooms, right? So, but when you go on a, on a couple, who, who is a close tent person close to me? Who liked, who liked tents? Besides, he's kind of a little bit far away. Who over here? All right, Brady. If you go on a camping trip and you're just going for a couple nights and you put your tent up, how much landscaping around the tent do you do? Do you uh, plant a garden, <laughs> put a fountain up? No, nothing like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the wilderness. Who needs those things, right? So, yeah, we don't do a lot of manicuring around the tent when we put it up because it's temporary, right? We know that we're going to pack it up in a couple days, and so we don't put too much effort into it. And so that analogy might seem a little bit crazy, but I, I see many of us putting a lot of energy into our temporary lives here on earth. And we spend our time and money building our little kingdoms, trying to create this really comfortable life here that it makes me question a lot of our present ambitions. It makes me question a lot of our present ambitions. But Paul began in verse 1, if you noticed, his first three words, for we know, and, and then he goes into this list of things that he feels like he knows. <laughs> How did Paul know? I mean, he's, he's been speaking pretty confidently here for a few chapters, right? How did he know these things were true? I'm asking you. How do any of us know? <laughs> yeah. Because he, he was one that would speak on that because it was his life, right? 
Okay, so, so part of it is experience. Experience has told him that, that this earthly tent is wasting away, right? So there's, there's that reality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a life-changing personal encounter where Christ, like, shone a light and struck him blind and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, pretty powerful. How else did he know? What's that? The Spirit? Yeah, he has got the Holy Spirit inside of him. That's, that's great. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that. Okay, but some of it's just faith, <laughs> right? I mean, we all can see the things that are on the earthly level. We can see the decay, and, you know, we all know everybody's going to die, right? But then to believe that there's this heavenly dwelling waiting for us, that, that requires faith. Because none of us have seen those things. So, but Paul speaks throughout his writings with this absolute confidence, okay? So I want to just put up a couple questions there is, how does that confident perspective affect our mindset and our ministry? Let's start with that question. How does a confident perspective on these spiritual truths affect our mindset and our ministry? When you're around confident people who are speaking confidently the truth of God, what does that do for you? How does their ministry impact you as opposed to maybe people who aren't as confident about what they're sharing? Makes, makes you believe things more strongly? Yeah. What else? It rubs off on you. Okay. Yeah. Your, your courage grows being around other courageous people, other confident people, right? <clears throat> if you have a coach who really believes in what your team's capable of, right, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, maybe we can do that, right? Coaches that are in the locker room beforehand and think, well, we're not very good. <laughs> Look around the room, you know, <laughs> let's not fool ourselves here, kids, Right? I mean, that doesn't inspire you to go out and do it. And so when you think about, um, you know, what my, what my mindset and my ministry is, if, I'm, if we've been talking about we are all ministers of the new covenant, then what confidence are we bringing into that ministry? Are we inspiring confidence in other people? Do we believe it ourselves? Have we wrestled with some of the truth so that we, you know, have this sense of, yeah, I really do believe that. And I can share it with somebody with confidence that that is true. <laughs> if we don't have it, how do we get it? Maybe even a more important question. If you're thinking, I don't feel very confident in some things or what I believe or how I explain that to other people. What do we do about that? Are we just stuck? We have to settle for just being a not very confident minister? Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, great. We test it. We take steps of faith, and we, and we watch God meet us there, and, and that it gives us confidence. Yeah. Yeah, great. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God, so the more time we spend in God's Word, those things are, become true and embedded in us. 
I love the promise um, of James 1.5 in just this perspective. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And I, I don't know for sure that this is true, but I, I kind of feel like that's kind of a fill-in-the-blank promise almost of like, if any of you lacks hope, if any of you lacks love or faith or confidence or courage, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Like, he wants you to have those things. <laughs> if you ask him for those things, he's like, sure, yeah, absolutely. I want you to be faith-filled and confident and, and bold. I need you to do that for the kingdom. Verses 2 and 4. Hmm. Paul used this phrase. I don't know if you picked up on it twice, this word groaning. And he says that we're groaning while we're trapped in our earthly bodies, longing to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling. And in order for us to groan, we have to be convinced that our heavenly dwellings, our heavenly bodies will be that much better. And this is all really delicate, right? How do we live in the flesh without putting too much confidence or hope in the flesh? So that we groan and long for our eternal homes. And I think a lot of this comes back to valuing the spiritual over the physical, which we talked about last week. And uh, I pick on Brad a lot. I'm sorry, Brad. But, you know, Brad owns the CrossFit gym in town. And so his whole livelihood is predicated on people investing in their earthly tents, right? These physical bodies, like he's, he's helping them uh, be more fit and develop those things. Um, but I know for a fact that he cares more about the eternity of his clients than their temporary physical condition. Thank God, right? He understands, though, that our earthly bodies are wasting away. And so that's why he talks to people about their life and he invites them here to Wellspring to, to help them fix their eyes on what's eternal, where their hearts are at, where their life's going, because he gets that. And by verse 5, Paul addresses this in-between in tension that we live in. And he says, one of the ways that we know <laughs> is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Right? Paul says that the Spirit has been given to us as a posit guaranteeing what is to come. And that word guaranteeing is a Greek word, um, well, in the Greek, it's arhaban, which in today's language would translate to something like engagement ring. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? So I feel like that's something we can really grab onto. We're starting to get somewhere here now. <laughs> you see, God gives us a taste of our heavenly dwellings. He, he puts the presence, his presence into us in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste of what that's going to be like, a taste of what your true identity is. And when we experience the Holy Spirit's work in our life, shaping us, changing us, it makes us long and groan for that all the time. Like that, that day when once and for all our, our flesh is going to be cast off and we can be perfect I don't know about you, but when I, 
when I see, because of the Holy Spirit in my life, myself, I mean, I've been following Christ now, you know, 30-something years. So when I, when I get a, a hint at times that I'm being less selfish, that makes me want to be less selfish all the time because I see the reward of selflessness. And I'm just like, man, I, I long for the day when every thought that pops into my head is selfless. I groan for that. When I see that I'm much less prideful and arrogant than I used to be, and there's more humbleness and humility in me, I long and groan. Man, I want every thought that I have to be humble first. I want that. My son, Zach, a lot of you guys know him, just put an engagement ring on his fiance, Sam. Um, but it's a deposit guaranteeing something to come, Right? Those of you that um, have experienced the engagement period, you, you have a sense of what Paul's getting at with this whole groaning thing, okay? When we find the person that we want to spend our life with, that person that loves you for who you are, right, and just thinks that you're awesome, right, believes all the best things about you, person you can be completely honest, like we long to be united with that person. And so that engagement time between the ring and the altar, man, sometimes that can drag on, right? Because you're like, you have this sense that what's going to happen when the two become one, as God talks about in marriage, become one flesh with this person. That's a different reality than when you're engaged to them. This engagement is nice. It's a deposit. It's promising something, but the reality is so much better than that. And we groan for that. We long for that. Some of you may have heard of an 18th century American pastor and evangelist named Jonathan Edwards. We have a lovely photo of Jonathan this morning. Any of people have heard of Jonathan Edwards? Okay. Yeah, he was kind of a famous pastor, evangelist. Um, He was, a little tidbit, he was the grandfather of Aaron Burr. Maybe a relative of yours, Bill Burr, I don't know. Aaron Burr's the guy that shot Alexander Hamilton in the duel. So anyways, things history teachers say. Um, so the reason why I've got this guy up here is that many of us make New Year's resolutions, okay? Pretty common thing in our culture. Jonathan Edwards kind of took that to another level, okay? He had 50 life resolutions that he reviewed weekly, and they were in multiple categories, okay? So we had them broken down into categories like relationships, ministry, time management, character, and one of his categories was labeled suffering. And number nine on his list of 50 life resolutions was this. It's up there. Resolved. To think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He went on later to say this, as I think on these things, as I think on my own death, how it will affect others, how it will affect me, I want to think on these things because it will change the way I spend my tonight. It's going to change the way I spend my tomorrow. 
I want to think on these things so that I might be prepared and that I might be one who is preparing others because that day is coming. It is just going to come. Edwards understood the reality of what Paul was talking about here in verse 10. I want to read that one again. Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We must all appear. And I know a lot of people in my life, (laughs) I'm married to one, um, who would just as soon avoid the topic of suffering and death altogether, right? They'd rather just folks kind of like this, and I can be like this at times, right? We'd rather just kind of stick our head in the sand on the topic and just kind of pretend like it's just thing out there that happens to other people and not us. Well, Edwards had a whole category of life resolutions on the topic of suffering and death, And I wonder, those who would just as soon ignore the issue, how are they, how am I sometimes preparing themselves for the inevitable, the day when every created person will stand before the judgment seat of God? Because I love the other-centered perspective of Edwards, right? He didn't stop with just, I want to dwell on these things so that I prepare myself for that day, he said, and so that I can prepare others as well. See, he got that it was, there was a big picture here that people's lives were at stake. <laughs> if I had to guess what one of our major obstacles is at connecting with Paul's teachings and writings as Americans, is that we Americans think too much of earth and too little of heaven. We think too much of earth and too little of heaven. Because our view of heaven, I think, has been really warped by popular culture and what I call folk Christianity. Folk Christianity is like things that people say that sound nice, that sound biblical, but but you can't find them in the Bible. (laughs) They're just accepted Christianity. And heaven in in popular culture and even in folk Christianity gets painted as this big family reunion in the sky. That the time when all of us are going to get to see the loved ones who have gone before us and, and, you know, it'll be this great reunion of people. And and I'm not saying that that's not going to happen. I don't know for sure, okay? And that sounds, it's nice. It'd be great if it did. (laughs) But I think that we forget that ultimately what makes heaven heaven is that God's there. God's there. His presence makes heaven what it is. And I have this inkling that if or when we arrive there one day, that we will not be as concerned about the things or the people or the person that we're hoping to see, I think we'll really be consumed by the fact that we are standing in the presence of God 
the lamb who was slain so that I might be free. And I think more than worrying about who we're going to see or what we're going to do, we'll be so caught up with the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come, who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul makes this statement. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. What Paul's saying there is that with the Spirit's presence in these tents of ours, that he gives us a taste of eternity. But we can't even conceive the treasures waiting for us in the presence of our Savior. If we knew fully what that will be like, we would groan for that. And God says, I'm going to give you a little taste of it. And the more that you engage with that taste and connect with this vision of heaven that I'm giving you of who you're going to be and, and what that place is going to be. And, and, and the more, the, the deeper you grasp the power of what God has done for you, the more you will long for that instead of this. If we can begin to embrace a more mysterious and wondrous vision of heaven, then we might actually groan for such a place. Remember the, the larger context of Paul's writings here in chapters 2 through 5 is that he's, he's preparing us. He's saying to us, you are all ministers. Every one of you who is a follower of Christ, you are all ministers of this new covenant. Being that you are all ministers, we all have a responsibility, an opportunity to speak boldly about the things that we believe. Like last week, remember, we said, we believe, so we speak about the things that we know to be true, the things we know are true, the things that life experience has told us is true, that there is something deeper, there's something more meaningful than what most people are settling for in this world. There's abundant life now. There's eternal life forever with our Savior, with the God that has promised amazing things to those who love him. And so like Edwards, can we be people who are not only preparing ourselves for that day, can we be people who care enough about others that we're interested in preparing them as well? For that day will come. And so I want to put the slide back up that we kind of began our time with. A right desire for the future, a proper understanding of what is to come, leads to right ambitions in the present. The way I view what is coming leads me to live a particular way in the present. So after the ground that we've covered today... What is that saying to you now? I'd love to just finish with sharing a few thoughts that are on your mind.
by faith, yeah, I'm looking forward to what's coming. Yeah, Brad? Yeah. So if we if we come to terms with this reality that that one day all of us will appear before the judgment seat of God, like if we believe that that's true and keep that ever before us, how could we not want to make sure that this person next to me who I love knows that? And yes, Jake, <laughs> speak up because I've had a cold this week, so my ears are all clogged up, so. Good. He said, when we read the rest of the story, we know how the story ends, right? Jesus is victorious when he comes back. And so when we're following a, a Savior, a God who's victorious, to give us confidence through um, life as trials come. And sometimes it looks like things aren't going the way we want. Or, you know, it's again that focus on what is unseen and on what is seen. We don't, we don't lose heart. We don't get discouraged in the midst of that. Yeah. What else is this making you think of? Anybody? Yeah, Justin. Yeah, basically he says he's kind of useless as a follower of Christ. He's not helping other people understand this, right? Yeah. I think there's something to be learned in the fact that not only Edwards took the time to write down these life resolutions, but that he took the time to review them weekly. That, that is a habit or a practice of fixing his eyes on what's ultimately important in his life. And we fix our eyes on all kinds of crap in this world, don't we? We fix our eyes on screens. <laughs> Even sometimes we fix our eyes on humans at the expense of fixing our eyes on Christ. Like we really love our spouse, we really love our kids. Those are all good and noble things. But we have to fix our eyes on God. <laughs> And, and his truth and his reality that then will then help us fix our eyes on other things in this world in the right way with the right perspective. 
So I just, this is a great reminder, great challenger for me. I honestly looked at this passage and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> this is not the easiest passage. You know, when we read it the first time, you're probably thinking, well, a bunch of things about tents and I don't know. But it was rich when I got into it, right? Awesome stuff to help remind us about where our attention and our focus needs to be about keeping our eyes on what we know the ultimate future is so that the ambitions that we have here and now are, are valuable and important and eternal and on the right things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, reminder in your word today. God, that uh, once again, like things here are fleeting and temporary. And in America, again, we have this expectation that we're going to get to live till we're you know, whatever, 78, 80, whatever life expectancy is here. And, um, you know, we've got all these medical advances and, um, you know, aging creams that we can put on to, to make us not feel old. And we can, if we want, we can live life kind of avoiding or, or kind of ignoring this issue, this, this reality of, of suffering and death and decay. And um, all that does when we keep, keep our eyes off of that and kind of stuff it away and... Um, is it keeps us from not only being the person that you've created us to be and living with a sense of urgency, but it also makes us ineffective at reaching out and caring for other people and sharing that truth with, with folks who are desperate and who are dying and are hurting and need that truth. So God, I pray that you would help us to have the right ambitions based on what the proper vision of the future is. And God, that we would groan and long to be in your presence and to bring as many people with us as we can because that's the gospel and that's what we're ministers of. So help us to fix our eyes on those things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with us as we close? <laughs>